this podcast to me is a learning experience. Uh, I think we're both going to learn how to work with each other and how to utilize this platform and each episode as it comes. But I also see it as a learning moment for other people and know that this is hard for us. You know, as two black people, we're going to be delivering some content that we ourselves are digesting probably for the first time and investigative work that truly does resonate with us. You know, we can identify in this stuff. Uh, we want we want other people to take a step back and rather than just feeling shock and shame and these emotions that would limit them from learning to kind of hesitate and um, just kind of take it all in and process it slowly as as we go. So I messaged Evnish like, I tried to connect him with a few of my friends because there's not a lot of lawyers out there that will try to um, address race in such a such a serious way. And I think it was that Habitat case that got my attention because this was an affordable housing crisis that was going on affecting low-income black families and no one was really, you know, giving them a leg up and trying to stand up for them. Um, so I, I messaged him and I was like, you know, I see the work you're doing. I tried to connect a lot of the people I know to him. He messaged me. No, no, I also asked like if he had any opportunities, if he had any uh, thing that he needed assistance with. Like I'm, I'm so down to volunteer and just like, you know, follow, follow his work. And then he messaged me uh, a month or two months ago saying, you know, I have this amazing opportunity. Are you interested? And I didn't want to like press like what the opportunity was. I wanted to actually figure out what it was, um, you know, face to face or FaceTime or Zoom. And he told me about the the podcast and how there was an opportunity to be a writer. So uh, whether it be writing blogs or like helping out with um, research, there there was a there was an opportunity for growth. And that's not what I was expecting. <laughs> I was expecting more of a hands-on approach with what he was doing case-wise. But this was like you know because I, I am a listener of the podcast. I see the great work you guys are doing um, in this community and how the city needs more. Uh, perspectives of black voices sharing it's not just our stories being told by us but how it's being told the language that's being used I think language goes such a long way in how you deliver things so uh, I was I was floored I said yes obviously um, but do you do you want to ask like how how this even happened like how I'm uh, suddenly now co-host when we first started the podcast me and Bashir thought it would be a good idea to have me as the sole employee of I guess is this for real and that model really didn't work for us it was very difficult for us to produce the work that we wanted to produce and just have it be one person and I definitely got support from uh, Nicholas I got support from Avnish uh, and Bashir was a really you know integral part of getting all the episodes out but it was very difficult we knew that we had to change things so yeah when the opportunity came to bring on Hanan it was it was really perfect for us so yeah, I think that's kind of how we got to this point. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I was definitely surprised. Uh, I didn't think my voice would be would be something that we could utilize here. I thought it would be more of my work, uh, but I am very excited. You went to school at the University of Alberta as well, but you were at Augustana, which is interesting. Do you want to tell us more about what Augustana is like and living near Camrose? Yeah, so Augustana is uh, the small faculty of the U of A. There's 
a really small, like 1,500 residents that can live there. Um, so it was really surprising when I went down. I assumed there would have been more, at least people of color, even indigenous people, because it was so close to Wetaskiwin. But I remember being, you know, probably the only black person if I didn't see my sister, because she also went there. But as the years went on, I saw this increase of more black students. My final year, we had the most black students. The intake was, I think, about a hundred, uh, around a hundred. It was a lot of first year students and it was phenomenal. Uh, we had a good mixture of people that were coming from African countries and, you know, Southeast Asian countries, like all around the world. And it showed that black people didn't just come from Africa. Uh, a lot of us have moved and have lived in different areas um, as a result of, you know, neocolonialism or whatever, all these other things that are going on in that, in that continent. But it was great that we all came together um, originally because we, we were all black people, but afterwards there, it became a common goal to try to understand the things and the systems that were working around us. Um, and we formed a group called the Diversity Working Group, uh, which awkwardly um, in my final year was referred to as a hate group by some students because we, we advocated for, it's in the name, Diversity Working Group. And what year was that? <laughs> that was in my fourth year, so la, 20, I graduated in 2019. It was really surprising to me, but a lot of faculty and, and staff and um, even just like the librarians, they knew what we were doing. They supported us. Um, they gave us spaces when, you know, you had to book months in advance type of thing. Like they would they would try to make it easier for us and reduce that red tape so we could get our message across. And um, whatever events we were doing, they would bring their own family like they were they were really about it. Uh, but it was it was kind of upsetting when you know students weren't so keen on trying to understand what we were trying to say, especially with a lot of them saying like, "Oh, you're the first black person I've ever met," or "the first hijabi that I've ever met." Um, I was hoping that people would receive um, coming to our events or trying to understand where we were coming from because they already knew this is our first experience with people that look like this. We're trying to get to know them. So, so that's a really fascinating experience. I don't think many black people or people in general get to experience what you did going to kind of a rural rural satellite college in the middle of Alberta. But you also grew up in Dickensfield, which I think is like a pretty incredible thing that you should definitely tell us more about. Yes, I, I grew up in, in Dickensfield. I went to Glengarry Elementary School. Um, I lived there for about, I want to say, 12 years of my life. Um, and then I lived in Malaysia afterwards for, for 10 years. So I moved. But growing up in Dickensfield was was uh, the only experience in my life where I lived in, in an area where there were more people that looked like me. Um, there were more people that wore headscarves around me. There were more um, people that were of the same faith as me. Um, there were more indigenous people around us. So, you know, from a young age, I already learned. My neighbors would be telling me, you know, you were born in 1996, so that's like when the last residential school was closed. And I would ask, what's what's that? What's a residential school? So that was my first time getting to, to know and understand, really, the struggle that indigenous peoples were facing in Canada and also trying to understand you know this wider refugee movement that was happening you know in Dickensfield like Dickensfield was the place where you would go and you would find you know a bed to sleep that night if you were looking for somewhere or some food um, people were very very welcoming and in my final years of living there, I noticed this change. Um, there would be hesitation to go visit people's homes. You know, my mom wouldn't be braiding my hair outside anymore. Like, we would be inside. Um, and the fear wasn't something that my parents would explain to me. Like, they would just say, you know, we're trying to keep safe. We're trying to understand what's going on itself. But 
slowly, you know, it definitely had to do with the up in policing or it had to do with more um, incidences was what they would call them or like they would try to stop things from happening and it confused me a lot because I mean, hello, my mom would be braiding my hair outside like from, you know, sundown and like it would still be dark outside and it was totally safe. But slowly we started noticing this change and when I moved, um, I didn't return to Dickensfield until I think after I graduated from Camrose. And once I did, I, I saw this huge difference, like the areas where I used to play, you know, the community league, the place where I even got the milk from my mom. Like I would walk and buy milk sometimes as a young kid and it was super safe. But now when I walk there and I see it, I would never let, if I had like a, a 10 year old walk and go get milk, like it, it didn't, it doesn't seem safe at all. Like it doesn't seem like the place um, that I grew up. And I don't see it as a, as a, the community that's not making it safe. I, I see it as a failure in the part of, um, our society and ensuring that this is like a the place where I grew up to sustain that if that makes sense no that makes a lot of sense um, and just like supporting those communities specifically because we know that you know historically at least for the past decades a lot of black people live there mm-hmm. so why is it that that community doesn't get the support to you know not only do you know beautification or at least make it more livable mm-hmm. but um, a lot of other things that a lot of other communities have access to. Mm-hmm. So I guess going from there, you have just graduated university. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Thank you. And you're about to start school. So you want to tell us more about that? Yeah. So I graduated like in 2019 and I worked for this this year um, because I applied for law schools and I didn't get in the first round. And although I was super frustrated about that, I kind of saw this as an opportunity to do more character development. I mean, law school would have been an extremely challenging thing for me to do after, you know, cameras and not processing what has happened in my life so far and also not taking a break and getting to know my family better. I mean, I've been in Malaysia again for 10 years with them, but I feel that I wasn't able to to kind of conceptualize like my life so far. And I took this year to do a lot of healing to ensure that when I do get into law school, I can I can just thrive, if that makes sense. So um, I applied and I got into the University of Ottawa, which was my first choice, and I'm extremely grateful for it. Uh, I hope to uh, specialize in international law and investigate human rights violations, but I do also want to do social justice in in the terms of not just performing social justice, but having movements be built from the bottom up. And I think movements, someone once said this to me, uh, movements are essentially when people are sick of the truth not being told. So they're truth tellers. They're trying to seek truth. And the opposite of that are people just trying to maintain the norm. And it's not to say that they're they're liars, but the point is to shed light on injustices that have been happening for so long. And I do want to um, continue that work. I want to continue it in the form of legal advocacy uh, rather than people hearing the law and feeling afraid. I want the law to be used as something that would bring justice for all rather than justice for just a few you're also going to help continue that work with this podcast. It's a really good segue into, you know, what we want out of this podcast project, but I think also out of this platform. So in, in your eyes, you know, what, what do you want out of this opportunity um, with Is This For Real? So I had to think about this a lot because, you know, other than continuous gaslighting of myself, I also want to know that I'm, I'm worth 
you know, this opportunity. I can see myself sharing not just my perspectives, but sharing perspectives that I've uh, learned from other people. So this podcast to me is a learning experience. Uh, I think we're both going to learn how to work with each other and how to utilize this platform in each episode as it comes. But I also see it as a learning moment for other people and know that this is hard for us. You know, as two black people, we're going to be delivering some content that we ourselves are digesting probably for the first time and investigative work that truly does resonate with us. You know, we can identify in this stuff. Uh, we want we want other people to take a step back and rather than just feeling shock and shame and these emotions that would limit them from learning to kind of hesitate and um, just kind of take it all in and process it slowly as, as we go. I mean, this is, again, a learning experience for both of us. And I hope, you know, our viewers, you know, as someone who was a viewer, <laughs> uh, I, hope, I hope that I can bring that magic that I saw in you and um, share, share black voices um, truthfully without, without filtering it and without worrying of consequences. I'm really excited. I'm really excited for the work we're going to do. Do, do you have like a title, Omar? Like, are you a community advocate, activist? Are you just Omar? I'm just Omar. I don't like titles. I've, I've tried to put a title on myself for a very long time. And I just decided it's easier not to do that. <laughs> so, or you just do too much. You're, yeah, you're really out do. here doing, do. doing the absolute most. Yeah, we, we love to see it, Omar. Um, yeah, I, I'm very inspired by... People like you, Hanan, I'm very inspired, especially by Bashir. I've seen him work in Edmonton since 2015. So he's really put in the work and, and it inspires me to, to do the same. Yeah, I mean, if this is an inspiring uh, shout out to each other, I'm, I, I <laughs> knew both of you, I think, before you even knew me, um, the work that you guys did, you with the Gateway, um, you know, being the chief editor as, as a black man, um, as a black student, you know, it made me really aspire to reach uh, investigative research heights. Like it really, it really did show, even though I was in a different campus, like I had no business reading The Gateway, <laughs> um, but I did read it. And it was specifically because I knew that black voices would be, would be centered in black issues because you were, you were in that position. And similarly with Bashir, like in 2017, the, you know, the, ma the waves he made with the whole carding discussion, um, how he really showed out for, um, the black student that was called out by the the whole Catholic school situation, um, and how how strong you know this little kid was in the face of uh, blatant discrimination from a teacher and a whole administration, and it, it was amazing to see how you know people showed up for like I think it was fifteen thousand people showed up at the legislature. Um, I just truly hope that we can keep that energy going so that future Emils or uh, future even yous or Bashirs, when you guys are out there actually and actively dealing with situations that, you know, 15,000 people can show up for you. Um, because we do know Edmonton has these numbers of people that do care about uh, these issues. Um, I just hope we can keep that momentum going with this podcast as well. I think that put it perfectly. Is there anything else that we need to cover or like I'm trying to remember now? Well, one thing to me is trying to understand how we ended up here. Like, you know, we don't just wake up one day saying, I want to make a podcast talking about black lives in Edmonton. It's funny you say that, but that's actually what happened. Oh, wow. Please like, share more. Yeah, no, Avnish woke up one day and, and said that he wanted to do a podcast on issues of policing, issues of racism against black people, against indigenous people. He wanted this to be a thing. So he messaged Bashir, he messaged me, 
and we made it a thing. You Amazing. know, we literally two weeks, a month later, we, we made it a thing. I just think it was also like all these people were uniquely positioned to be able to accomplish this. And we just had the right people in the right, you know, at, during the right times. Like Nicholas, for example, someone who worked with Bashir a lot, that connection wouldn't have been obvious if, you know, Avnish didn't ask Bashir and Bashir didn't ask Nicholas. And now we have, you know, what we have now. So I think we were just uniquely positioned. Um, and my background as well as a journalist and, you know, before this, um, people may not know, but I was actually uh, working as an essential worker. <laughs> so amazing. Um, yeah, I was working um, with uh, Big Brothers, Big Sisters, Edmonton, um, Boys and Girls Club, and basically just like delivering food hampers. Um, and yeah, COVID was happening. Um, I got laid off. So I put out a tweet basically asking if anyone had, you know, work available. And Avnish was one of the first people to respond or at least like retweet it. And then, yeah, a few days later, he messaged me about this podcast. So, um, yeah, it's kind of a little bit of the background. And I had a lot of experience in, in, in campus journalism before, and I had done a few other um, things before that. But this, I think, is one of my, I guess, first post-university experiences when it comes to doing journalism, um, at least in a meaningful way. It's good mm. to know that a lot of that was done intentionally. Like, although you guys were in very unique spaces, um, you guys had, I think to me, the common factor was intention. Um, the intention to to share and elevate black voices, but to also kind of shed that on Edmonton right now. And I think the city is missing that a lot right now. Yeah, no, I really think it is. Um, and it's a, it's a weird position to be in because I think people want projects like this. They want, you know, voices that haven't been represented. They want people to have more power and more influence in various institutions. But there is still a lack of that. There's still a chronic lack of that. So I think just taking things into our own hands, you know, doing this the way we want to do it and making sure that it, you know, lasts for a very long time, I think is, it's what we're trying to do. It really is. Exactly. And in this situation, I truly appreciate Patreon and how people are able to not only just um, be listeners, but actually actively participate by supporting and donating to this to this cause. Um, because there's not a there's not a lot of grants out there, huh, Omar? It's tough. It's tough. A lot in of these paperwork. Streets. I got to do a lot of paperwork to get grants. Oh, boy. <laughs> the Patreon money is 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 so important and so well appreciated because it really is just mm-hmm. no questions asked, kind of just direct. So mm-hmm. I think uh, it just makes our lives so much easier. We don't have to worry about anything. We can just, you know, make what we want. Exactly, yeah. Like, a lot of people don't talk about that fear of editorial creativity. And if it was a grant or if this was a one single support mechanism, uh, it would have all these requirements that we would have to fill. And it's it's worrisome for an investigative journalist type of thing to uh, base their research on uh, receiving a grant. There's a word for that. I can't think of it, but... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a tricky situation because obviously every project needs some kind of funding to to run itself. But I think there are honest ways and there are dishonest ways to, to, to get funding. And I think that in order to create a project that is that is honest and you know free from negative influence or influence that's in the interests of certain people 
I think you need to have, um, you know, honest sources of funding and transparent sources of funding mm-hmm. as well. We've received a few grants, um, one from the Edmonton Community Foundation. Amazing. Uh, yeah, a really amazing organization that's supported us um, from the beginning, really. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think it's just, yeah, trying to be honest with with who you're getting funding from and, and, and just making sure that you're you're transparent with, with listeners. We're looking to start really trying to get people to communicate with us in more open ways. So um, obviously you can always email us. Uh, my email is O-U-M-A-R at isthisforreal.ca. Hanan, your email? H-A-N-N-A-N at isthisforreal. Yeah, you can send us... Dot C-A. Nicholas spoke up, dot C-A. Dot C-A, yes, dot C-A. So you can... You can also DM us. We have a Twitter account. Yes, we, we have do. An Instagram account. We'll look at your DMs. We'll, we'll definitely answer them. So if you want to get in touch with us, if you have any, you know, questions, comments, concerns, if you just want to chat about a situation that you're going through that you think we might be able to support you, uh, just get in touch. I'm excited. I think we're going to do a lot of great work. And um, thank you for supporting the podcast. If you're listening and you're a supporter on Patreon. And um, I really appreciate everything that we've been able to do so far. I'm so happy to have Hanan on the team. and um, we'll, Happy to uh, be here. Happy to be here. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, we'll talk to you soon. <laughs>